What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Damp Valley coming at you with some good old-fashioned, really crappy NBA content. Before we get into it, just a usual reminder and also my plea to subscribe to us wherever you consume us if you have not done so just yet. If you're not with us on YouTube, hit that sub button, like and comment on videos, um, engage with the community. We're really trying to build up Hardwood Knox on YouTube. Uh, it's been a lot slower than I wanted to, so help us out. Hit the sub button. Also, download every episode wherever you get your actual podcast: Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, whatever your player of choice is. If you've done both of these things, one, I love you. Two, tell people about us. Shout us out on Twitter. Retweet our promos. Um, anything that could help us, again, continue to to grow. And what is a very saturated, we get it, basketball content market. But look, if you're in the comments and you hate us or you hate listening, we really do put a lot of work into covering the league as thoroughly and as unseriously yet seriously as possible. For this, uh, I want to talk about my MVP ladder. I do that every two weeks for Bleacher Report, so I'm going to go through it. I will maybe stop doing it once it becomes relevant, but early on, uh, there are shifts at the top. This is only our second one. We're, we're not even a month into the season. And I, I think a lot of, of things have changed. You can go back and check out the first one that I did two weeks ago. Again, these are done on a biweekly basis right now. Um, I want to remind us all though, that I do have a set of criteria where I'm, I, I understand that the MVP criteria is subjective. I don't wait record as much i'm looking at players who are most impactful but i'm also trying to separate oh do they actually just play on necessarily shitty teams and they're able to easily uplift shitty teams because that's not necessarily a a hard baseline to to stick with um that's not to say that net rating swings aren't impressive uh, it's just that if you know if in the warriors case let you step the bench has been by and large awful he has propped up this team and is really good. He's on this ladder. I want to make it clear, but how much do we weight that? Um, and that's what I, I struggle with the most. You can let me know what you think in the comments or on Twitter. Um, get at me on our Discord. Join our Discord channel. The link to that is in the YouTube and the podcast description. Um, but yeah, let's get into this. Throw it up on the screen for anyone who's following along on YouTube. Get to my, you know, I blow through the, the top, um, I mean, numbers six through 10. Um, I have a tie at number 10 right now in the honorable mentions department. I have Kevin Durant and Joel Embiid. They were both previously unranked in the last MVP ladder. Embiid is averaging 40 points, 5.3 assists, 2.8 blocks, and 16.5 free throw attempts per game since rejoining the Philadelphia 76ers rotation uh, four games ago. He hasn't played enough to be placed any higher than this, but his case will continue to strengthen while James Harden is sidelined, especially if he's putting up these mind-melting numbers. Durant, meanwhile, is just on fire. He is shooting and scoring and passing and defending his butt off, and the Brooklyn Nets look like an actual basketball team following Kyrie Irving's suspension. I would keep my eyes on KD's MVP stock, too. It could, look, either they're doing it without Kyrie Irving, in which case he gets the narrative boon of always doing it without Kyrie and what is Ben Simmons right now, or Kyrie does eventually come back after he finishes um, you know, his laundry to-do list after being suspended for promoting the anti-Semitic documentary. We don't know when he's going to come back, but if he comes back, he'll be a distraction. And if KD can lead the Nets through this and prevent them from blowing up, I have my doubts, but Durant is balling out right now. He's, and I would say everything about him has stood out, but the defense in particular, some of the help rim protection, he's been really good. So those two are tied at number 10. I didn't want to choose. Nicole Jokic comes in at number nine for me. Uh, I think people will campaign to put him higher. I do this as who I think should win the award, not who I think is going to win the award. I don't think Jokic will finish in the top 10, maybe. Um, he's not going to win the award because voter fatigue is a thing. Right, wrong, it's it's a thing, whatever. Um, the Nuggets are starting to look dominant, though. Their schedule 
has something to do with it. They're beating the Thunder and the Lakers. They beat the Spurs. But he owns the highest net rating swing in the league. That is a testament to some wonky bench returns. But it's also wild because some of the bench lineups have been good. And Jokic has just visibly de-emphasized his scoring and three-point shooting. Not shooting the three-ball well, not shooting it as often, just not as aggressive as a scorer. I think there's probably value in that. Let's get these other guys reps so they can figure it out and be ready for the playoffs. You also have Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. coming back from their injuries, so you're trying to integrate them, working with KCP to get his chemistry down, having Aaron Gordon score within the flow of the offense, giving the ball to Bones, um, not necessarily playing a ton alongside Jokic relative to other players. So there are other players that have the ball or are operating as play finishers. Um, that doesn't dilute his case. I just want to make that clear, but I'm splitting hairs here. We're four weeks into the season or whatever it is. Um, this is a tough field to crack. Jokic was eighth last time around. John Morant comes in at eighth. He was four last time around falling four spots. Not unprecedented this time of year. It's also not a big deal. The Grizzlies do spit fire when Morant is on the floor, but over the past two weeks, since I last did this, he's shooting under 31% from three and sub 67% from the foul line. That's just something to monitor here and also during this stretch guess who leads the grizzlies in scoring desmond bain not john Morant. that's not really a, a demerit against him i just thought that was a fun fact long live desmond bain devin booker's at number seven he was previously ranked fifth uh, there's nothing he's done uh to warrant dropping down two spots it's just that the field in front of him is is huge you have but look at the suns and they're coming off this loss to the heat they did almost win scoring regression from chris paul an injury to chris paul heel injury Cameron Johnson, knee injury, out for a while. Still no Jay Crowder. Borderline vanishing acts at times from DeAndre Ayton. And yet the Suns are just this regular season machine. Booker is the primary reason why. He is that steadying force on both, both on and off the ball who scales to so many different lineups and offensive approaches that I'm at the point where quantifying his impact is just impossible for me almost. A good start, though, he ranks third in plus-minus for the season. Under the circumstances, that's pretty damn impressive. That wraps up my honorable mentions. There is no sixth because I have a tie for fifth place. It is Steph Curry and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I think this might surprise some people, um, and I don't think that it should. The response that I'm expecting to get is oh Steph and Shea both play for sub 500 basketball teams right now uh it's true but wins aren't a player stat um choosing between Steph and SGA when it came down to it was hard so I simply didn't uh and I can't bring myself to care that the Golden State Warriors are comfortably below 500 and combusting on defense or that the Oklahoma City Thunder ended their four game losing streak by beating the shorthanded Toronto Raptors and, and the sad sorry directionless Knicks who we might talk about in a few minutes um, both Steph and FG SGA are only responsible for what's happening when they're on the floor and their teams are winning those minutes. Let's look at Steph. Golden State is a plus 7.9 points per 100 possessions when Curry plays. That's a 27.2 point increase over its differential when he's not on the court. It helps that he's playing within a killer starting five. It also helps his case. That statistical case right there. It's not a good thing for the Warriors. I want to make that clear, but it's helped this net rating swing that the bench is absolutely terrible. That doesn't make his job any easier. Curry up lifts everyone around him just by virtue of existing. He needs neither the ball nor actual numbers to break defenses. And yet, he's got the numbers anyway. 32.8 points, 6.5 assists, while finding Nylon on 64.8% of his twos and 43.4% of his 11.9 three-point attempts per game. I need to fan myself off. That's a lot of three-point attempts. 
Putting Curry any higher, though, than fifth for me, uh, it feels a little off. Over 70% of his possessions have come alongside Draymond Green and Andrew Wiggins, the Warriors, um, the other two best players, I would say. If you want to argue for Jordan Poole, I would I would say absolutely not. Playing a little bit better lately, but not as good as those two. Um, so, And then the bench just being so bad, it unnecessarily exacerbates Steph impor- Steph's importance. If the Warriors were, you know, like, nine and three um, right now in spite of that bench. And this, it was sort of the same story. Then yes, Steph case is stronger. Um, I, I guess they would have to win the win minutes by more when he's on the court. I'm just saying it didn't necessarily have to be like this. The Warriors chose to stack the deck with youngsters who are either, they're not going to play like a la James Wiseman. And then in which case they're taking up a spot on your roster or they are going to play a la also James Wiseman previously and struggle and hurt you. I don't know how that should, you know, affect Steph Curry's case. He's in the top five for me. That's a compliment. Um, SGA, meanwhile, 31.1 points, 5.7 assists, 2.1 steals, and 1.5 blocks per game on mind-melting efficiency of his own. Among everyone to attempt at least 35 pull-up jumpers this year, only Steph and KD have a higher effective of field goal percentage. SGA is shooting 73% at the rim and 51.7% on step-back jumpers. This all comes, by the way, on what can only be described as end-all usage. Out of 273 players to appear in at least 10 games, Luka Doncic is the only one with a higher share of unassisted buckets. Through it all, meanwhile, SGA has kicked it into high gear on defense. And the Thunder have outscored opponents by 33 points when he plays in total. That's one point more than the Dallas Mavericks have outpaced opponents by with Luka himself on the court. Again, these are not perfect comps, but I would argue when you look at the Mavericks on paper and their second and third and fourth best players, just having Christian Wood, Spencer Dinwiddie, Dorian Finney-Smith, I don't know how close the Thunder come to rivaling that direct supporting cast, as shallow as the Mavericks are. I, Lou Dort is great. Josh Giddy will show flashes. Poku, I, like, dude, he's been amazing of late. Uh, everything just even just like blocking a, a crap ton of shots. I mean, it's not he he was a novelty at one point, and he is a favorite of this podcast because his game is just so quirky looking. Um, he's a good player now, so I'm not trying to discredit what the Thunder have going for them. But like you look at this supporting cast, everyone thought OKC was tanking. Um, Shea being able to lead them to not just respectability, but a decidedly net positive point differential when he's on the court. Uh, that that's impressive. And I think it's worth being fifth. We can get into later in the season, seeing how far below they might be um, below 500. They're closer to 500 than the dubs right now. And a, a bunch of other teams for that matter. So I'm not getting, like I said, too caught up in, in the record. Steph was previously ranked sixth, by the way, and Shea was previously ranked seventh. Donovan Mitchell comes in at number four for me. Uh, his previous ranking was two. He drops two spots from last time through no fault of his own. The top five landscape is just a gauntlet of mega star power. Mitchell missed two games because of an ankle issue over the past two weeks. And he had a couple of shaky performances from beyond the arc that set the stage for this teensy weensy dip. Is it splitting near invisible sized hairs? Hell fucking yes. Do I hate myself? Absolutely. That's how it goes atop this early season mountain. Overall though, Mitchell just continues to slay defenses from basically everywhere. The share of his shots coming at the rim is at its highest since 2018-2019. A pretty substantial feat given some of the lineups in which he works. When you're talking about he has two or three non-shooters on the court with him. More disarming, he's dropping in 75% of those looks at the basket. That's a logic liquefying number even by early season standards. 
exactly one player is a better high val high volume, excuse me, off the bounce three point shooter flamethrower right now, by the way. Mitchell is shooting 40.7% on off the dribble triples on more than five attempts per game. The only player with a higher success rate on those looks with that volume, Steph Curry himself. Everyone should be, to me, in my opinion, impressed with how Mitchell has handled playing in a new environment. Some of the timing and placement of his passes can get weird, but his turnover rate has not exploded, and he's averaging as many assists per 36 minutes as he did over the past two seasons while going with his career-high scoring rate per 36 minutes. Darius Garland is back, uh, had that 50-point explosion on Sunday night. His return will diminish Cleveland's reliance on Mitchell, that's actually a good thing. Mitchell's averaging over 39 minutes per game for the season. That can and will and must come down. Whether the pullback alongside Garland will adversely impact Mitchell's MVP case, that remains to be seen. It hasn't yet. It also doesn't matter, and it will continue not to matter so long as the Cavs look like contenders with him because that's what they still are in my book. They've had rocky performances, lost to some pretty good teams, had that heartbreaker against the, um, oh my God, the Warriors the other night, just really shooting, drawing blanks there. They are in the probably the second tier of contenders still for me. That is the the more important factor, but it will be interesting to see if Garland and that dynamic impacts Mitchell's case at all, just because when you have so many good players, I do think it's easier to dilute an MVP case. Uh, three for me, this one, look, before I even get to it, this, this hurt and I want to make it clear. He's not going to stay here, but, and it's, it's wild to me that number three is going to be considered an insult, but it's Giannis. Uh, he was number one last time and there's exactly one number that prevented him from being number one again three left knee soreness cost him three of the milwaukee bucks previous four games entering monday night he now ranks outside the top 150 in minutes played quality over quantity it's early blah 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 blah. but the margins are just razor thin so early into the season other players including the two to come are providing profoundly impactful performances across larger samples that counts for something to me Again, and as I reiterated, it doesn't mean Giannis will be here forever. He won't. He was my MVP pick for the year, by the way, and I would still pick him to win it. Uh, it's just in the meantime, when you don't have the sample, I, I have to. I just have to make this change in the spirit of everything. Um, but you dig into the numbers, and it's like, well, is this still sort of hopeless if Giannis is going to stay healthy the rest of the way? He's averaging 31.8 points, 12.2 rebounds, 5.3 assists, 1.1 steals, and 1.4 blocks while downing 59.4% of his twos and deleting entire possessions from existence on defense, both on and away from the ball. Opponents are shooting 50% against him at the rim. That's one of the seven stingiest marks allowed among 78 players to contest as many close-range attempts as Giannis so far. I do think there's an overindulgence from the perimeter, and that's probably the sole non-availability knock against Giannis right now. Uh, should almost one-third of his looks be coming from mid-range if he's shooting 25% from there? Perhaps not. I'm a big advocate, though, of there's value in the volume. The same goes for his pull-up threes, which he's not really hitting at a high clip himself. They keep defenses on tilt. Also, sub-30% from mid-range is low for Giannis, so that will come up. Also, also, none of this matters. He's a dominant anomaly even when he's not hitting hitting those shots. Number two, this is, look, it's a, it's a mea culpa here. Number two is Jason Tatum. He was unranked in the last MVP ladder. I... Look, talk about your big, bloated, inexcusable misses. I left him off. I too heavily weighted what happened in the Boston Celtics loss to the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Chicago Bulls, along with Jason Tatum's slumping efficiency on off-the-dribble jumpers. I was wrong, and I am sorry. I'm correcting it here, 
I'm not overcorrecting it here, though. He came pretty darn close to, to topping the whole ladder for me. His numbers induced drool. He's averaging 32.3 points and 4.1 assists per game on 65.3% true shooting while getting to the foul line at a career high clip. His pull-up jumper, as I already mentioned, it continues to miss the mark, but he's somehow converting 80% of his looks at the basket while getting to the line a ton. That is definitely going to offset any sort of perimeter wonkiness. It also helps that I think Boston has streamlined a lot of his three-point attempts. More of those are assisted than last year, and he is banging in those. With that said, Boston has increased its reliance on Tatum over the past couple of weeks. He has responded by reminding us all that, yeah, the playmaking leap is real. His potential assists are up during this stretch, and he's never been more unpredictable or on target as a live dribble passer. Uh, even just the over-the-shoulder the kickouts, uh, those have been fantastic from him as well. I also look at it this way. No other player, almost no other player, is as important to his team at both ends of the floor. There's Giannis, maybe Shea at this point, and that's probably it. Um, it feels like the Celtics have Tatum checking harder assignments. He remains disruptive away from the ball, and he's turning blocks from behind into an art form. That Tatum, by the way, is doing so much to damn near everything with a left wrist injury makes zero sense. Sure, his MVP credentials may be hard-pressed to fend off Giannis and a certain someone who's coming up uh, over the course of a season, but if he recaptures any of that off-the-dribble jump-shooting mojo, I think we're looking at the most complete player in the NBA, which then is going to significantly bump up his MVP credentials. So he's at number two. Sorry for leaving him off the first time. I do not think number one is going to come as a surprise for anyone. It's Luka Doncic. And what's interesting, I'm sure many people had him number one from the start. I had him number three last time. The extent, and this, for listeners of this podcast who are, you know, religious listeners, one, again, I love you all, but this is going to sound repetitive. The extent to which Dallas is relying on Luka is staggering. And it's also historical. Two other players have posted a higher usage rate. 2016-17, Russell Westbrook, and 2018-2019, James Harden. Even more absurd, almost 91% of Doncic's made bu buckets have now gone unassisted. Among every player to average at least 15 minutes and appear in five or more games, his 90.7% mark would be the largest share of unassisted field goals made in the NBA's tracking database, which goes all the way back to 96-97. And based off where those numbers were trending, I would argue it might be the highest share in NBA history. I, I don't know enough about the history of the game, how it was in like, you know, the sixties. And I don't think it would have been like that in the seventies, but the eighties maybe. But as we were getting into the early two thousands and nineties, the people who led the league in the share of unassisted field goals made were in like the 70% range. Now let's be clear. All consuming usage doesn't automatically translate to substance. There will be those who argue Doncic cannot play any other way that he has to be an unprecedented focal point. Maybe there's validity to that stance, but we wouldn't know. The Mavs have never armed the offense enough to explore displacing Doncic from the ball. Left untouched, this roster isn't built to make that shift now either. Spencer Dinwiddie and Christian Wood combined to open additional offensive doorways, but Dallas has opted so far against playing all three together. And here's the, here's the other thing for me. Doncic is wrecking worlds playing this way. His 34.3 points per game lead the league and come on 60.9% shooting inside the arc including about a 50% clip from mid-range. His sub-30% success rate from beyond the arc will rankle people, and it did for me last time. It played a part in holding him back to that third spot. 
Since that first MVP ladder, though, he's shooting 35.6% on trays while still getting to the foul line more than I can count. I also think that his 8.1 assists per game don't do his passing justice. He is third in, in potential assists per game at 16.3. So Dallas is connecting on fewer than 50% of his assist opportunities. I would say there's a lot that could go into that. Are they getting grenades at the end of the shot clock? Are they just not taking high-quality looks? But only Harden and Tyrese Halliburton have generated more potential assists per game. That's a big deal. And I had people in the YouTube comments saying that Doncic isn't a good passer. I, if you have a problem with the ball dominance, fine. Um, Doncic is not a perfect player, but could we like not pretend that he's not a transcendent passer? Conventional wisdom does suggest that he can't keep this up because we've never seen anything like this. He's looked tired in certain games too, but the all Doncic everything model is working. The Mavs are eighth in net rating despite being just two games over 500. And if there's anyone who can sustain this unreal usage, it's the 23-year-old who has never been on a Dallas team equipped to saddle him with anything other than unreal usage. That's where I landed with my MVP ladder. Just to recap, and we'll do it in reverse order so that the ties are a little bit less confusing. I have Doncic at one, uh, Jason Tatum at two, Giannis Antetokounmpo at three, Donovan Mitchell at four, Steph and SGA are tied for fifth, so we jump to seventh. That is going to be Devin Booker. Eight was John Morant. Nine is Nikola Jokic. And a tie for 10th for me right now, Joel Embiid and Kevin Durant. Who's your MVP? Let me know. You can get at me on Twitter. The socials are in the YouTube podcast description. Let's talk some New York Knicks, shall we? Um, I have already noted that I think the Knicks should fire Tibbs. I do stand by that. But it's really time to talk about their overarching direction. And uh, this was something I thought about a lot after their loss to Oklahoma City on Sunday. Most NBA teams have a discernible direction. These directions aren't always urgent. Think about Orlando or successful. Think about Brooklyn. Some are reflected in singular players. You could think about Dallas. A few you have to squint to see, like Chicago, but you can, in fact, see them. Others are complicated by surprise, sup Utah, or disappointment, sup Minnesota, but they're nevertheless visible. Scattered throughout the league, though, are a handful of organizations without concrete course. The Knicks are one of them, if not leading that aimless charge. This has been semi-clear for longer than many will care to admit. It is painfully obvious now, on the heels of another telltale loss, this one a 145-135 to 135 Sunday defeat at the hands of the Oklahoma City Thunder that evoked effusive boos from the Madison Square Garden crowd, and justifiably so, in many ways, this ended up being the quintessential Knicks loss, a conflux of everything that remains wrong, both fixable and absolute, with a nod to their Jekyll and Hyde extremes. They opened with a 48-point first quarter on 20 of 31 shooting. Nine different players scored in the first 12 minutes. New York led by as many as 13. Over the next two quarters, though, the Thunder outscored the Knicks by 28. Shea Gilchrist Alexander absolutely roasted New York's defense, he scored 21 of his 37 points in the third alone. Oklahoma City ranked hellfire from three, going 13 of 18, which is over 72% on its triples across those two quarters. That's not bad for a team that entered the game 25th in points scored per possession and 29th of 30 teams in three-point accuracy. One loss is not typically all-revealing. Letdowns happen over the length of an 82-game regular season. Inexplicably blown leads and all. But this Knicks loss, like many others, featured many of the same issues that have plagued them all year and in seasons past. 
New York's defense has allowed teams to bomb away from deep without much resistance since this season specifically tipped off. Closeouts on these threes range from half-assed to non-existent for long stretches, and the primary offenders are exactly who you think they are. I'll just I'll, I'll leave it there. Only the Timberwolves and Toronto Raptors allow a larger share of opponent shots to come as completely uncontested threes. The Knicks rank 27th overall in the frequency with which they surrender long-range attempts. And they don't counteract this volume that they forfeit with a detectable identity elsewhere. They limit looks at the rim, but when you watch them, that does feel like a function of offenses not needing to venture inside the arc for quality shots. The Knicks don't force turnovers or effectively crash the defensive glass. They're 26th in forcing turnovers and 25th in defensive rebounding. That defensive rebounding issue is new. That doesn't make it any less damning. Julius Randle right now is the only Knicks big who averages at an above average rate on the defensive glass. That was a terrible way of saying it, but he's the only Nick big who places better than the 38th percentile in defensive rebounding. Think about that. That's not good. Oklahoma City, going back to that game, did not win the fast break battle on Sunday. It was a 14-14 to stalemate. That's something of a minor miracle because the Knicks rank inside the bottom five of both transition frequency and points allowed per possession. They are dead last in points allowed per possession after committing a turnover. That's according to Unpredictable. The first few stats are from cleaning the glass. Sitting a hair below 500, fewer than 15 games in the season, shouldn't be the end of the world. But this also presumes that the Knicks are built to be better, that their biggest obstacles are coaching, injuries, or work-in-progress chemistry. Coaching comes closest to being the answer here. Like I said, I already called for the Knicks to fire Tibbs after their, uh, it was a November 2nd loss to the Atlanta Hawks. People with, let's say, clearly vested interest in the situation weren't thrilled about it. I stand by it. My issues with Tibbs are neither original nor specific to this season. Stubborn roster mismanagement has been his default, even dating back to his Coach of the Year campaign in 2020-2021, and it was on full display in the Thunder game specifically. R.J. Barrett picked up his fourth foul with nine minutes, 58 seconds left in the third quarter. Tibbs then proceeded to sub him out for Evan Fournier. R.J. Barrett never saw the floor again. When, when Tibbs was asked about this after the game, his, his response predictably lacked substance. He said, we just got behind by so much that we were just looking for life. And that group that was in there after Barrett subbed out gave us a little bit of a spark. So that's what we went with. That's asinine logic. Fournier has played most of this season like he deeply wants the Knicks to land Victor Wembanyama. In no world is he the answer over Barrett. Never mind that Fournier went 0 for 3 during his 14-ish second half minutes. Uh, he was a um, he, he was a plus, I think, 6 during that span. But whatever. Uh, Barrett is no worse than the second most important player to this organization when you're looking at um, on-the-court stuff. It's Jalen Brunson and then him. And that, like, that's like you're hoping RJ Barrett pops. You're hoping Jalen Brunson continues to play as well as he has. You don't rope RJ to the bench for the chance to maybe, possibly, if you're lucky, potentially win a November matinee against the, the Thunder. Spelling Barrett for foul trouble, I, I get it, but that's also debatable in itself. And you could also point to him not having the best season. His performances are littered with drives to the basket. Um, that have unplanned or unknown destinations, and he's been frustratingly inconsistent on defense. 
He was two of 10 when Tibbs pulled the plug on Sunday. Still, his play over the previous seven games, when he was averaging 21.5 points while shooting 53% on twos and 43% from three, warranted benefit of the doubt. To Tibbs' credit, he did at least dust off Quentin Grimes to chase around Shea. Oh, no, wait, he didn't. That's right. Because Grimes is situational. Because his conditioning isn't up to snuff. Because he suffered a left foot injury that's largely kept him out of the rotation. And because the Knicks are clearly too good, clearly too good, to give him reps outside garbage time. And also, though, because Grimes might still be injured based off things that we've heard. In which case, why is he situational, not just out? Transparency has never been the Knicks' preferred mode of operation. So I recognize that Grimes' status might be above Tibbs' pay grade. The continued lack of invention behind lineups and rotations is not. Remember when he actually played Randall and Obi Toppin together for 10 glorious minutes against the Sixers and how the Knicks were a plus 14 during that stretch and how they came from behind to beat the Sixers that game. That duo has logged 32 total minutes since and didn't play against the Thunder. I don't care about the plus minus. The two are minus 28 since that Sixers game. It's heavily skewed by their November 5th, lo- November 5th loss to the Celtics. The sample overall though is just too small to be deemed conclusive one way or the other. It's on Tibbs to make it conclusive. Mitchell Robinson's out with a knee injury. Thoroughly explore the fucking pairing, for crying out loud. Especially if it ensures Toppin never winds up logging fewer than eight minutes in a game like he did against the Thunder on Sunday. Yes, I want to make it clear, Toppin's core time has been up during Robinson's absence. That doesn't make this excusable. Also, that Tibbs needs to be criticized for not implementing um, different lineups or changes elsewhere. Top and Randall remaining breaking case of emergency that receives the most attention, but nearly 90% of Barrett's possessions still come alongside Randall. That's a problem. And heaven forbid Tibbs play more than two of his perimeter youngsters at a time. The Strickland had this very interesting tweet that said, if you're like me, you probably saw cam uh, reddish and Emmanuel quickly defending their asses off amidst the chaos and thought, what would the two of them look like next to RJ? How could they help him? The trio of IQ, Reddish, and RJ has played four minutes together the entire season. Think about that. That's the end of the tweet. This shit matters because self-discovery matters. The Knicks are not title contenders. Right now, they're not even a play-in team. Developing kids and plumbing unproven lineups should be at the top of their to-do list. And yet, I will say, while Tibbs deserves plenty of the blame, the front office of Leon Rose and his primary decision makers have not done nearly enough to justify keeping their jobs. Maybe they have a problem with the way Tibbs coaches the roster. They're also the ones who assembled it, who rushed to extend Julius Randle after his outlier 2020-2021 campaign, who gave Evan Fournier three guaranteed years, and who, most recently, and worst of all, continue to give Tibbs a depth chart that allows him to overindulge his commitment to veterans and rigidity that he disguises as continuity. Armchair idiots like myself can call for Tibbs' job. And look, if we're being honest, we know this ends with him losing it. Ian Begley went on SNY and said that Thibodeau's seat is warm. And Ian Begley's is plugged into the New York Knicks as any one person could be. If And he's, he also said, this per SNY, if you have another few of those games on, on the upcoming road trip where the Knicks look just terrible, I think there's going to be a big change made, whether it's Thibodeau or something else. Tibbs is not the only problem. He probably isn't even the Knicks' biggest problem. Another coach could take over and prioritize development or functional flexibility, 
And that's not going to rescue the Knicks from the carefully crafted, vague position they're in now. Jalen Brunson is their best player. Think about that. He's really good, but you can only go so far as a team when your best player is maybe a top 50 guy. That's why New York is biding its time to trade for a superstar, is what people are going to say. And Sham Sharania just said it. He noted during an appearance on FanDuel TV, executives around the league believe that the Knicks are kind of hoarding their first-round picks, just waiting for that next megastar to become available. This theory, though a titillating headline, is just making fine powder out of a record already broken down into smithereens. Acquiring a star has supposedly been this front office's plan all along. They then proceeded to not acquire Donovan Mitchell, a star who wanted to play in New York. Whether mortgaging the farm for him was the right call is a separate matter. The Knicks were literally one first-round pick away or a Quentin Grimes away from making it happen, according to Sharania. In reality, they're probably better off. The Cleveland Cavaliers were actually one trade away from imminent, if not instant, title contention. The Knicks were not, and draining their asset pool could have locked them into just a glitzier-looking bubble of mediocrity that they're drifting within now. But what does that say about New York that it was prepared to give up so much just to chase early playoff exits, I guess. Is it that Mitchell was the first of multiple stars? Good luck with that. The superstar trade market, as we've talked about a lot around these parts, isn't conducive to acquiring more than one anymore. Landing Mitchell and Rudy Gobert drained draft pick caches in Cleveland and Minnesota, respectively. Ideally, you want at least one star or a future star in place before you, before you go all in on another. The Knicks don't have that player. They don't. Barrett is the closest they get to a blue-chip cornerstone, and he's apparently not a lock to play over Evan Fournier when Tibbs is searching for life. It is here, to me, where New York differs from so many other not-good teams. Oklahoma City has its timeline with Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Josh Giddy, the injured Chet Holmgren. The Houston Rockets have their timeline with Jalen Green, Jabari Smith Jr., Alperin Shangun. The Magic have theirs, Paolo Bancaro, Franz Wagner, Jalen Suggs, Wendell Carter Jr., the Detroit Pistons have theirs, Cade Cunningham, Jaden Ivey, Jalen Duran, so on and so forth. It doesn't matter whether you believe in the long-term viability of these young cores. The fact is they and the possibility they bring exist, and their teams are built around optimizing and prioritizing their development. The Knicks front office hasn't done that for their young guys. Worse, they haven't put the team in a position to even find that pole star prospect. Skirting an actual rebuild, while questionable, this is someone who wants the Knicks to actually do an overhaul, recognizes that they won't. It, that idea, though, skirting a rebuild, is not without merit when you're in the star acquisition game. But the Knicks don't appear married to that either. Mitchell alone would not have vaulted them into, into contention, but there are maybe five players in the league who would, and none of them are on the verge of getting dealt. Meanwhile, the Knicks themselves seem to know they won't stumble into star arrivals during free agency. Red carpet names aren't leaving the open market anymore. And we sure as hell know New York's front office hasn't amassed all those first rounders to draft and develop. Much of this could be forgiven if the Knicks were at least invested in fully, coherently exploring the hand they have now. They're not. We wouldn't be here together as a family discussing another meltdown that wanted for rhyme and reason if they were. Is New York rebuilding? Are they open to it? Are they devoted to the superstar chase? Are they worried about re-entering the top six of the East first and figuring out the rest later? Do they aspire to have a Charlotte-esque monopoly on the 9 through 11 seeds? These are basic questions. And the inability for New York to answer them is equal parts maddening and longstanding. 
fundamental directions are mirrored in how a franchise is built and managed. Built by Leon Rose, managed by Tom Thibodeau, these Knicks are the spinning image of an organization that hasn't the faintest idea of what it's doing or where it's going. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, the indelible, a former Nick who could have turned everything and anything around, Frank Nilakina.